Al-Jazeera podcast. More missiles and deaths in Ukraine. Russian military personnel killed across the border. President Vladimir Putin says he's prepared to negotiate and accuses Ukraine of refusing talks. We ask, what are the chances of a negotiated settlement to the war? I'm Imran Khan, and you're listening to the Inside Story podcast, where we dissect, analyze, and help define major global stories. Let's bring in our guests. Pavel Felgenhauer is a defense and military analyst. He joins us by Skype from Moscow. Hannah Celeste is the Security Studies Program Director at the think tank Ukrainian PRISM. She joins us from Odessa. And Chris Weifer is the CEO at Macro Advisory, a consultancy focused on Russia and Eurasia. He joins us from London. A warm welcome to you all. I'd like to begin in Moscow with Pavel Felgenhauer. Uh, Quite predictably, the West and Ukraine have rejected this idea of any kind of uh, peace talks, whilst there is still a war in Ukraine, on Ukraine, some would say, going on. Is President Vladimir Putin serious about these talks? Uh, Well, President Putin has recently been expressing his desire to find a negotiated conclusion to this conflict, even called it a war which he previously didn't. Uh, Russian diplomats are more or less saying the same. Uh, So it seems that the Kremlin really wants to have some kind of conclusion and end the hostilities. But of course, on their own terms, uh, there have also been other expressions uh, of coming from Moscow. Today, there's an article published in the government, Rasiska Gazeta, by former president, Dmitry Medvedev, who is still right now an official uh, in the Security Council of the Russian Federation, who says that no peace, no negotiations with the Ukrainians. Uh, Russia is going to balance on the brink of uh, a total nuclear war until the West accepts Russian conditions on giving it full security guarantees. Uh, so, I mean, uh, well, Medvedev is playing the bad policeman, apparently. Putin, the good policeman. Uh, but I believe, yes, the Russia wants uh, pause in the fighting to freeze the situation more or less as it is right now. It's understood in Moscow that in, the, in Kiev and in the West, that's not really right now accepted. In the West, there are different uh, opinions, though basically there's a backing up the Ukrainians. So that means Moscow will be most likely putting more military pressure on Ukraine to facilitate a mm. kind of agreement on basically status quo, on freezing the status quo morally. Hannah Celeste uh, in Odessa, what do you make of what Pavel Felgenhauer has just said? There is this idea that Putin might be ready for peace talks, do you believe, Vladimir Putin? Uh, you know, uh, to be ready for the talks doesn't mean to be ready for withdrawal or for the peace or the end of the conflict. Because negotiations, any type of the negotiations, that is just the instrument. The question is what you are going to discuss during these negotiations. Mr. Putin is definitely ready for the certain type of negotiations. But what he would like to negotiate there, first of all, it is definitely quite a surrender of Ukraine, or at least part of its national interest and sovereignty. And we hear it not only from Mr. Medvedev, but from Mr. Putin himself. 
And the second is, you know, the deeds speak louder than the words. At the same day when Mr. Putin said about negotiations, it was the extreme shelling of Kherson city, the newly liberated town on the south, with 16 dead and 80 uh, wounded. When you're speaking about negotiations as a way for peace, you're not trying to destroy the city that you just lost. And definitely you are not bringing additional weapons. And we see the last week the additional weapons coming uh, to all borders of Ukraine and especially in the Parisian region. And the fighting just intensified in many of these uh, uh, places. So we understand that as for now, Mr. Putin needs negotiations uh, politically for Ukraine to surrender, but tactically to, as Pavel said, to freeze it for some time because he needs additional uh, missiles that he's lacking now in the necessary quantity and uh, um, training of the newly mobilized personnel and uh, also their winter uniform, something what the Russian forces appeared not to be prepared for such an increase in uh, personnel. So he needs this Pose. It's called operational pose, but not the ceasefire or the peace negotiation. But Hannah, you make an interesting point there, and I'll bring it up with Chris and with uh, Pavel in just a moment. But I'd like to ask you, you're talking about the idea that there are freezing these uh, tensions uh, and then going to the negotiating talks, but you're also talking about Ukrainian sovereignty. All of these issues can only be negotiated once the, part, once the two people sit round a table. You're not even getting to that stage yet. You're already putting up uh, barriers. Why don't you just start talking? Why doesn't the Ukrainian president and the Russian president basically start talking? First of all, uh, let's not manipulate because Ukrainian side was ready for negotiations from the day one, not speaking about the last nine years of negotiations with Mr. Putin. The last negotiations between Ukrainian and Russian president happened in December 2019, uh, where in Paris they agreed that in four months all four presidents will meet and talk again. Since then, Russian president constantly rejected any types of the negotiations, telling it's nothing to talk with Ukrainians. So when we appeared in February with this round of invasion, we had Ukrainian-Russian negotiations in Belarus, in Istanbul. What are the results? Nothing. Because even when Russia started to lose what they conquered, uh, they wanted only what? If you go, it is de facto elimination of Ukrainian statehood. Because they were talking about our language, about our history, about our foreign policy choices. They were speaking about re-educating of Ukrainian people. And that is the words not from some marginals, that is the words of the, uh, um, the political leaders of the country. So now, after nine months, the situation didn't change. That's why when Ukrainian president is saying about negotiations, he is not rejecting negotiations as the instrument for final agreements. But he is raising the questions about what we are going to negotiate. If we are coming again, right. and Mr. Putin is saying that well, like about some denazification of Ukraine, you understand that it is manipulation. It's not searching for peace. Uh, Chris, I will come to you in just a second, but I'd like Pavel's reaction to that. Uh, well, I mean, uh, the bombings and negotiations sometimes come hand in hand. Uh, but just uh, 50 years ago, there were the uh, uh, Christmas bombings of North Vietnam by the Americans ordered by President Richard Nixon to facilitate uh, peace talks in Paris. And well, peace talks uh, soon resumed there and the uh, peace agreement was 
found, though of course in the end it ended with the North Vietnamese taking over South Vietnam, but anyways. So this is not that uh, bombings and peace talks often come together, and I believe that right now Russian long-range attacks into Ukraine have also the prime uh, objective of actually forcing Ukrainians to the negotiating table uh, uh, without maybe preconditions, but that's right uh, that Russia would want. Uh, sovereignty, most likely, of course, would be good for Russia to get sovereignty, say, Ukrainian agreeing to so uh, cede sovereignty over Crimea or something. But again, that's understood that that's not happening. Uh, but uh, long-term pause in the fighting, a pause in the fighting, uh, would be important right now for Russia, and uh, that's most likely the kind of realizable objective that Moscow sees right now achievable. Chris, uh, in London. Uh, Chris, you're a, a, a consultancy that's focused on Russia and Eurasia, extensive experience in the region. Here we're looking at a situation where the Ukrainian morale is higher. Civil society is backing uh, a lot of the Ukrainian military. They're in a good position. They're about to get the Patriot defense uh, missile system from the US as part of this $1.7 billion aid package that they're going to get. The Ukrainians are in a very good position here. Moscow wants a pause in the fighting to be able to uh, go to the negotiating table. Is there any way that these two sides can meet when Ukraine doesn't quite have the upper hand, but it's certainly in a better position. Yeah, I, I think that's, you know, just reflecting what both previous speakers said, um, the, the position of, of Russia appears to be one of maximizing pressure, not only on Ukraine with the, the missile strikes, obviously in infrastructure uh, and, and on people, but the putting pressure also on, on Ukraine supporters, on, on Europe, for example, in particular, and of course, uh, I think that the timing, therefore, is you know uh, uh, not coincidental. We are moving into the kind of more the colder part of winter, uh, where energy, you know, will be a much bigger issue. Uh, potentially, still, you know, energy costs, energy disruption. So I think, you know, for for Russia, this is the best time to both maximize pressure on Ukraine and maximize pressure perhaps on Europe, or at least, you know, uh, kind of take advantage of the maximum pressure uh, on Europe in the energy sense. And then at the same time, you know, uh, put on the table the, the possibility or the openness for, for talk. So I think the timing is to do with, you know, the, the, the weather, the energy factor, and also I think the, the, the fact that, you know, Ukraine has now agreed this a very substantial uh, deal with the U.S., as you mentioned, Patriot missiles and other technologies. So, again, the situation militarily might be quite different in the spring uh, or after the spring, and, and, and Russia may be more vulnerable. So this is, for sure, the best time for Russia to both increase pressure as well as offer the possibility of, of, of talks. And also in terms of the economy, we are moving into a different phase in the economy in Russia, a more de debilitating phase. Uh, 2022, um, you know, it was more about crisis management, but Russia has made a great deal of money, a lot of money this year. Uh, the trade surplus will be close to $300 billion. So the National Welfare Fund and the other financial reserves are very high, but that is going to change. It's already changing. The, the ban on crude imports to Europe, 
the ban on the oil products coming in February. Uh, they're much lower volume of gas exports uh, in, into Europe. It uh, means Russia will earn a lot less in 2023. Uh, and as we go forward, of course, you know, that, that, that will have more of a damaging impact and will reduce Russia's financial uh, reserves. So, yeah, I, I think all of these things combined as to why we're now hearing this possibility of, of talks at, at this stage. Russia's position uh, may weaken as we go forward, certainly economically, because of the accumulation of sanctions impact. Uh, Pavel, what do you think? Russia's position is weak and therefore it needs to come to the negotiating table. Is that an accurate assessment for you? Well, of course, the official line is that Russia is OK, the Russian military is strong, the Russian defense industry is producing more weapons, the Western sanctions are not working. Uh, but of course, it's well understood that there are serious problems, uh, that uh, well, in the battle fronts, it's more or less stalemate and could get worse. And so Russia anyways needs a pause to uh, rearm, to uh, actually consolidate its uh, territorial uh, uh, grabs, uh, prepare for possible further uh, conflicts in the future. Uh, so that would be a preferable uh, result. Yes, uh, we'll, uh, right. offering the talks is good. If it doesn't work, well, then there's going to be military pressure coming. And uh, it's most likely everyone is preparing, bracing for uh, an acceleration of the fighting in on the battlefield in maybe rather soon, in January, say, uh, when the cold weather freezes the dirt finally, and both sides can go mobile, which they cannot yet right now. Uh, because though it's very much winter in Moscow, down there in the south of Ukraine, it's not, but it will be. And most likely both sides militarily looking forward for a decisive clash where Russia hopes to stop an Ukrainian offensive and reverse it and has reserves for that. So uh, it's most likely seen that first there's going to be increased fighting. And then as a result of that fighting, maybe both sides will agree to uh, negotiate some kind of stop for it. Uh, Hannah Schlest, uh, President Vladimir Zelensky is talking about this peace plan that he wants to unveil in February. There's still plenty of time between now and February to finalise that peace plan. But what would you like to see in that plan? You know, the President Zelensky already said a few ideas about what is inside during his latest speeches. And uh, definitely there are certain basics. Restoration of the Ukrainian territorial integrity and sovereignty is the axiom there. It is something that we are not ready even to uh, discuss what is right. I mean, you are not discussing how to stay without your hands after you are raped. Yes, you are, would like to have all your body. The second is uh, um, definitely the certain guarantees for the Ukrainian security. Uh, something not like the Budapest Memorandum that we signed when we rejected our nuclear weapons but uh, something that can prevent the further possible attacks from the Russian Federation. Because unfortunately, currently there is agreement in Ukraine that uh, in several years, if Russia is not properly defeated, it can repeat 
doesn't matter how the fighting is happening now. We are speaking about the coalition of uh, friends and partners, allies of Ukraine, who can be with us in this case. We're speaking about the possible uh, control over the Russian uh, um, military sphere. Probably not the total demilitarization, as some uh, dream about, but at least the maybe demilitarization of the line uh, near Ukrainian borders. Uh, we also speak about the reconstruction plan, because that's also the big question, who will be reconstructing the country that is destroyed now by the Russian missiles? And why the Western governments should pay for this when we have a lot of Ukraine, uh, Russian money being freezed uh, um, in different countries. So that is definitely quite a complex plan that has both the security part, the military part, but also the social humanitarian part about the reconstruction of the country and about um, a tribunal, or you can call it in any different uh, way, but about justice. Because there are so many military and uh, war crimes being committed during these nine months. And unfortunately, at each liberated territory, we are finding more and more cases of the mass graves, of the civilians' killings, and so on and so on. That Ukrainian nation is really calling for the justice. That's why we understand that part of the peace plan also will be any type of the uh, uh, justice search. Will it be the Truth and Reconciliation Committee? Uh, or the uh, tribunal. Sorry, the Hannah, we are running out of time, and I'd like to—I would like to put the points that you've made to Chris uh, Weifer. Chris, we're looking at two very stark positions here. Two very two yes. positions that are so far apart from each other that negotiated settlement seems highly unlikely. Is there any room for manoeuvre that you can see? I think, in terms of of the positions stated by both sides, then you'd have to say no. Uh, the, the positions are just polar opposites. Uh, from each other. And, you know, at, at the very minimum, you, you're talking about years and years and years uh, of negotiations. I think realistically and optimistically, what people are hoping for is simply a frozen conflict, a, a cessation of the fighting where, 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 where the missiles are no longer flying and people are no longer dying. That is, I think, the most realistic kind of uh, uh, level of optimism at this point, not, you know, what type of peace deal might be finally negotiated, because that just seems so far away uh, that, that really that there, there's, there's, that there, that there's no level of optimism that both sides could come together based on where they are right now. It would require leadership change in Russia for sure, uh, but many, many years. Now, I think at this stage, what we're, we're, what we're looking for and maybe what Moscow is hoping for is the terms of some sort of a ceasefire where the political process can then start and last for years. But a ceasefire would be important for Russia because it would probably end the momentum towards new sanctions if there was a ceasefire. And remember, a lot of the most damaging sanctions against Russia are, are voluntary rather than legislative. That are companies that have on their own initiative decided not to supply Russia, not to work with Russia, uh, not to be in, in, in Russia and are still leaving. So I think a ceasefire then you might, Moscow may hope that those sanctions momentum would end, some of those voluntary sanctions probably ease, and companies would be under less pressure to leave. So I think it's all about a ceasefire. It's not about peace talks at this stage. That's just too far in the distance and too difficult. Uh, Pavel, in Moscow, would Moscow consider a ceasefire, as our, our guest in London has just said, would it consider that as a victory? Uh, well, if not, uh, I mean, anything that happens, the Kremlin's going to spin as a victory. That's not the problem. Uh, but the ceasefire is what Russia right now needs, based, as I say, on 
more or less the line of control, a freezing of the situation, um, and details of who uh, gets what are negotiable, uh, but the, that is the baseline. And yes, that's what most likely Moscow would want, but I don't right now see it as happening immediately. I believe that first it's going to be decided on the battlefield and most likely during a, bit, a short but maybe vicious winter campaign, because in the West, people in the winter go to winter quarters. You don't fight when it's freezing. Uh, in Russia and Ukraine, they do, because then the dirt freezes and you can move through fields and dirt roads. It's everything frozen uh, solid. And that's where most likely both sides, militarily, military commands on both sides are gearing up for a very serious clash in this coming maybe January, February, uh, which will may decide will there be a ceasefire on which lines of control this ceasefire is going to happen. Sorry, Pavel, Pavel, we are uh, running out of time and I do want to come to Hannah as well. Hannah, uh, you've heard what Pavel has just said. There is going to be way more fighting before any kind of ceasefire comes into place. But is this a ceasefire the best you can hope for? No, Ukraine is not searching for the ceasefire as the uh, uh, just a ceasefire. We understand that our armed forces have the best security guarantees. But at the same time, referring to your phrase that you always said about the two sides positions or two opinions, there are no two opinions. It's not a commercial dispute. We have the victim and we have an aggressor. When you have a killer or a rapist and a victim, you're not speaking about two positions. You're speaking about who should be punished and in which way. You're not negotiating about this. You're protecting and defending you. Start thinking about this conflict from this side. And in this case, it starts to be easier to think about what Ukrainian side should should agree or should Chris Weaver, you've heard both our guests there. There is plenty of fighting to come. That's what we're hearing. But winter is coming and um, this is a conflict that can be fought in winter by two sides that have significant experience in all of this. So a ceasefire seems completely unlikely. Do you still believe that's the most likely outcome after hearing our two guests? It's the only uh, outcome where there can be any level of optimism. I mean, a peace talks and final peace agreement, I think is just so far in the distance, it's, it's not really worth even considering at this point. But as a first stage, there of course has to be a ceasefire. Whether or not that can be agreed before an escalation and fighting, well, we have to wait to see, we simply don't know. But I do believe that this is one of the kind of the objectives of, of say the Kremlin's energy strategy, the, the fact that you know it, 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 it has put Europe under a lot of energy uh, pressure coming into winter. I think the hope from Moscow is not that President Zelensky uh, will agree to sit down or to, to uh, a ceasefire, but that perhaps pressure from Europe or pressure from uh, other countries that support Ukraine right now, that pressure may then uh, change the, the, the equation and lead to a, a peace, uh, a ceasefire. So I think, you know, I say to be clear, uh, I think it is the only, a ceasefire is the only level of optimism that anybody can realistically hope for. But the question is whether that can come before an escalation in fighting or not, we simply don't know. But we know Moscow is, I think that's what Moscow's preference would be at this stage. But as previous speakers say, it's just not clear at all. I want to thank all our guests, Pavel Felgenhauer, Hannah Celeste and Chris Weifer. This episode was produced by Dermot Fleming, Nihad Elabedi, Michael Harwood and Gemma Harris. Studio sound was by Aston Goodison. 
The program was edited by Alexander Otishevich, Anirban Sakar, Lynn Engwin, and Jody Frias. Be sure to subscribe to the Inside Story podcast to catch every episode. And thank you for listening. Tune in on Tuesday for our next episode.